In these days of social media creation and online relationships, you know, people are becoming less and less afraid to air their struggles and their frustrations uh, more or less publicly. Uh, new terms have come into play as a sort of shorthand, a way to describe what can be very complicated, uh, but in simpler terms. Uh, you have some perception of what a ghost might be, for example, but what about ghosting? In a relationship, ghosting is when one party or the other suddenly stops communicating. Um, with little or no advance warning, they'll stop answering your calls, replying to your texts, and they may even block you. Clearly, the relationship wasn't all that the ghosted person thought it would be. You all know what breadcrumbs are. Uh, Hansel and Gretel left a whole trail of them, right? But what about breadcrumbing? Breadcrumbing is when the person you're in a relationship with stays in just enough contact with you to keep you hanging. It's the act of leading someone on by dropping little tidbits of interest, such as social media interactions or occasional messages or brief phone calls, uh, without any real intention of ever following through. By following the trail of relational breadcrumbs they're leaving, you'll eventually discover that you're just being manipulated to boost the other person's self-confidence, maybe, or feed their ego. So it's really rude and, and cruel behavior. But the most dangerous form of manipulating and controlling a relationship is the resurgence of an old term, uh, gaslighting. The gaslighting borrows its name from the popular 1944 movie. It's about a husband who manipulates his wife to make her think she's actually losing her sense of reality so he can commit her to a mental institution and steal her inheritance. It's a brutal form of emotional abuse that can result in PTSD, depression, and uh, loss of self-esteem. And you're hearing more and more people talk about it. Gaslighting is designed to make you question yourself, uh, your history, and ultimately your own sense of reality. And, and here's how they do it, with things like this. Oh, come on, I never said that. You must have misheard me. Uh, you're just being overly sensitive. Um, I don't know why you're making such a big deal about this. You know, your friends are starting to gossip about you. They're worried about your mental health. It's a way for the gaslighter to gain and maintain control in a relationship. And when you hear these kinds of things enough times, uh, you know, you, you can start believing that it's true, even when it's not. It can also happen in the workplace or in politics. Uh, and I wonder if there wasn't more than a little bit of it going on in the years leading up to the Reformation before there was even a name for it. How else could a whole church body maintain control over the better part of a population with a version of the gospel that just wasn't there? The verses in Romans that were such a wake-up call for Martin Luther had always been in the Bible, but no one but the church had a Bible back then. And the churches, the few churches that even did have one, was written in Latin. So what the church taught was what people believed. And it trapped them. And it manipulated them. It held them in bondage. And it drew them away from the simple truth that salvation comes to us through God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. And that scripture is the only sure form of uh, and source of truth. Now, those medieval years were very different from our more secular times. Back then, the spiritual world wasn't even questioned. It was taken for granted. And not only the kingdom of God and his angels, but Satan and his demons as well. And it was a time when our, our good shepherd Jesus was actually portrayed by the church as a stern 
frightening judge sitting on a rainbow sending sinners to hell. And if Jesus was frightening back then, the devil was just plain terrifying. He cut a figure who would go so far as to drag the dead from their tombs by the hair and cast them into the flames. That allowed the church to regulate and define a person's life. It held sway not only their life on earth, but even their soul after death. The church claimed that scripture was just too important to trust to the untrained, that it was the church's role and theirs alone to interpret as, interpret it as God's representative here on earth. And so the word of God, as the church saw it, had once again been used as a tool to hold believers in bondage, just like it was doing when Jesus came the first time. Well, by the time a young Martin Luther took his vows as a novice monk in the Augustinian order, the time was right for a religious reformation. While the monastery was generally considered the surest way to heaven, it might have been a place of peace and rest from the outside world, Luther found no solace there from the terror of an angry God. The harder he tried, the more he became aware of his shortcomings. Luther had set upon a pursuit of holiness, and becoming a monk constituted just such a quest. It was a place where he could practice his pursuit of perfection, free from the distractions and temptations of the outside world. He fasted, sometimes for three days without so much as a crumb. His desire to please God led him to embrace the penitential season of Lent, even over the celebration of Easter. But it never felt like enough to warrant an angry God's favor. He turned to the merits of the saints for comfort. His beloved church, while taking an individualistic view of sin, took a corporate view of goodness. Sins had to be recalled and accounted for one by one if there was to be any hope of absolution. When you died, you were sentenced to a place called purgatory. Uh, not very heavenly at all, not yet. It was a place for the price for sins not remembered and confessed or, or not yet atoned for on earth before you died could be paid over centuries or even millennia. Luckily for the poor sinner, the church had decreed that earthly credits for goodness could be pooled. And that pool was filled with the goodness of the saints and the Blessed Virgin, whose exemplary lives had earned more than they even needed to achieve God's favor. Even the goodness of Christ's own perfection contributed to a supply of grace that only the church, uh, through the Pope, could tap into and transfer to an individual's needs. Indulgences were all about taking the edge off the pain of purgatory with this saved-up treasure chest of unused grace. I know it sounds silly to us, but to the medieval peasant, it provided a mechanism to free the poor souls of your beloved or even yourself from the penalty of sins left unconfessed or maybe even forgotten and therefore unforgiven when you died. It offered hope for a price, or put another way, uh, it was forgiveness for sale. But that's how people were being taught. That's how they were taught you were reconciled to God. And no one ever dared question it, not back then at least not publicly. This was the gospel they were being taught, and if it didn't make sense to them, well, then there must be something wrong with their understanding of it, not the church's. It sounds a little like gaslighting, doesn't it? In 1510, Luther had the opportunity to travel to Rome on monastery business. They would be there for a whole month with enough free time to take in all its rich history. But that wasn't what excited or even interested Luther. The Eternal City was also home to untold uh, treasures of relics that offered, by papal declaration, reduction of your afterlife sentence simply by viewing them. Various churches in Rome claimed to be holding such valuables as a piece of Moses' burning bush, 
the chains that had once held St. Paul, and the scissors Emperor Domitian used to clip the hair of St. John. One even claimed to have one of the coins paid to Judas for betraying our Lord. There were bones of saints and hay from the manger, and then there were the stairs, the Scala Sancta, 28 steps, supposedly those who once stood in front of the Pilate's palace, steps our Lord himself once climbed during his, his passion. The church promised that if you climb them on your knees, repeating the Lord's prayer on each one, the soul of a dearly beloved would be released from purgatory into heaven. No city on earth was so richly endowed with these spiritual indulgences as holy Rome. And so Luther visited the shrines, and he viewed the relics, and he climbed those stairs on his knees, wishing that his father and mother were already dead so that he might free them from the bonds of purgatory by his sacred act kissing each step as he went. But when he got to the top, he raised himself, and he wondered aloud, who knows whether it's true. You see, beyond all that was supposedly holy, Luther had witnessed much more in Rome that was not. He saw the corruption of the church and the ignorance and superficiality of its priests. Uh, they would rush through six masses while he was still saying one. He watched them mock the sacrament in front of common people who had no idea what they were saying in Latin. He witnessed violence and brutality and even murder in the streets in front of, and they left him uh, more disillusioned than ever. The following year, he was called to serve as a professor of theology at the University of Wittenberg. Still, he was haunted by his own inability to please a perfect, holy God who hated sin and therefore must be angered all the more by a sinner like himself. Luther's tipping point came from his years of studying the word there. In the summer of 1513, he began a series of lectures on the Psalms. By the fall of 1515, he was lecturing on St. Paul's letter to the, to the Romans, and then it was on to the Apostles' letter to the Galatians. These were the times that proved to be Luther's road to Damascus, his awakening. It was in the course of these studies that he found the answer to years of prayer. God's word clearly stated in Romans 1.17 for in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And from our second lesson this morning, Romans chapter 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, before you can understand just how powerful that statement is, you have to get past all the church words. For all have sinned. That means that no one is perfect. No one has ever been perfect except Jesus, and no one ever will until the day he returns, judgment day. Uh, we've all broken his commandments. And you say, well, wait a minute, I never murdered anybody. You know, and my first reaction would be to say the same thing. But then Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. You ever put being angry with someone right up there with murder? God does. We've all failed to love our neighbor as ourselves. We've all put someone or something uh, before God in our lives, and that's a sin too. We've all sinned against God in one way or another, and because God is a just God, you know, we deserve what's coming to us. God's penalty for sin, by the way, is the ultimate death sentence. Not just physical death, uh, but then spiritual death, eternal separation from him in a place where hope doesn't exist. 
you can begin to, to see Luther's worry and concern, right? Physical death and then spiritual death. Man, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God is perfect and holy without sin and are justified by his grace. Justified is a word that means how we're declared right with God. Think of it like just as if I'd never sinned. We are justified by his grace. Grace is another church word that means the undeserved love and mercy of God. God doesn't owe us anything, but he offers us everything freely. The Bible says that apart from those good things done as a result of our faith, all our works are like filthy rags in God's sight. There's absolutely nothing we can do to get past those pearly gates someday apart from God's grace, his gift of grace. The angry judge of a God Luther had been taught to fear is to those who are his own a loving, welcoming heavenly father, a model for all earthly fathers, who is willing through no merit of our own to welcome us into heaven as his dear children. And he wants all people to be rescued and come to saving faith in his son. The next part really caps it all off, though. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Jesus lived the, lived the perfect life that God's law demanded, but we could never achieve, and he did it for us in our place. Jesus would go to the cross and suffer and die for our sins in our place so that by faith in him we might be forgiven declared right with God. His life and his atoning death for us redeemed us. It purchased our freedom from slavery to sin with his own shed blood. You know, set free from the power of sin and death and the devil. Can you begin to, to, to sense the freedom that that gives us? Not freedom to sin, not that, but really to be out from under sin's heavy burden of guilt and, and shame and condemnation. Because that's the real power that Satan wields. You know, you're not good enough. God could never forgive what you've done. You can't even forgive yourself. How could a holy God ever love a person like you? How could anyone? That's his trap. That's his power. That's his lie. In the Gospel of John, Jesus calls him the father of lies. Satan invented gaslighting. The truth is that God does love you. So much that if you were the only person on earth, he still would have sent his son to suffer and die on a cross to take away your sins. That's how valuable you are. And that's what gives you value. And that's the good news we have to share with the whole world. Luther had it right all along when he said there was nothing we could possibly do to save ourselves. But now he understood, and this is the key to understanding the Reformation, that there was nothing left to do except believe that Jesus did it all for us. Luther had finally found the freedom from guilt and hopelessness that he'd been seeking. And so can you. He discovered what had been there all along in God's word, the good news of salvation by God's grace alone through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And that it was God's word alone, not, not papal decrees and church councils that should be the source of doctrine and truth. So he set out to make things right. These three solas, a Latin word for alone, became the battle cry for the reformation of the church that followed, a kind of shaking herself free of all the shackles that encumbered her, chains conceived and constructed by a church that had clearly lost her way. Luther never set out to start a new church body. He only wanted to fix what was broken with the old one. But a lot of people had a lot to lose if that happened. A lot of wealth, 
and a lot of power, and they fought back. Luther was eventually excommunicated, and here we are today. So that's the story of the Reformation, but the story of the Reformation really isn't nearly as important as its message. The simple truth that sinful people like us are rescued from sin and freed from its condemnation by God's undeserved love and mercy, his grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. That's the promise of God in his word. And it's the good news we have to share with the world. Amen. And now may that very special peace of God that passes all understanding keep your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Amen. We'll take a moment now to receive your gifts, your tithes, and your offerings. They'll pass around.